The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. So a month ago, we surveyed this congregation in person and online. We wanted to know your favorite passages from the Bible. Specifically, we asked what words from the good book most inspire you, comfort you, guide you? Which passage do you have scrawled on a three by five card and tucked in the corner of your bathroom window? Today's text is one such cherished passage. It comes from the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. These beloved verses also happen to be one of my favorite passages, and I want to tell you why. But first, let's listen to the text together. Listen now for God's word to you as it comes to us from Romans 8, beginning with the 31st verse. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what the author of Romans says. No body and no thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is what the apostle Paul asserts earnestly, repeatedly, poetically, passionately in the eighth chapter 
of Romans, at the very heart of the letter that biblical scholar N.T. Wright calls Paul's masterpiece. So let's start there. The book of Romans is a letter. Now this is how Paul did ministry. <laughs> he reached out to people that he'd met and to people he'd never met by writing letters. Reverend Sarah Speed recently pointed out that Paul did hybrid church, church that's both in person and church that touches the lives of an extended family of the faithful long before the words hybrid church were ever bandied about in American Christianity. In fact, most believe that Paul wrote Romans to a group of Christians that he did not know, whom he had never met, never even shared a cup of coffee. He was preaching to folk who lived in a distant city, a place he hoped to visit. He was seeking to nurture the faith of the far-flung family of God through the only virtual connection available in the first century, a letter. At the same time, I don't believe that Christians living in Rome were complete strangers to Paul. The apostle was a Roman citizen. Surely, in the year 57, when Paul sat down to write, he heard whispers of trouble echoing from the eternal city. In the year 57, Nero was the emperor in Rome. You've heard of him. Nero was the ruler of all lands touching the Mediterranean Sea, from modern-day Spain, across Italy, then to what we now call Turkey, and then sweeping down all the way back across northern Africa. Nero was not a good or kind or generous emperor. Historians, the historians of the day, described Nero as tyrannical, corrupt, and self-indulgent. He was utterly ruthless, too. Early in his reign, Nero's mother served as an advisor to the emperor. And one day, annoyed at his mother's criticisms of his approach to governing, Nero had her murdered. Aren't you glad I chose this passage for this week and not next week, which, reminder, Mother's Day is coming. <laughs> More than a few historians claim that Nero started the great fire of Rome in the year 64 to clear away neighborhoods of poor folk so that he could build a decadent palace, the Golden House. The historian Tacitus writes that Nero cruelly shifted the blame for this fire from his troops to the minority Christian community in Rome, and he demanded that his soldiers seize Christians, douse them with oil, and burn them alive. When Paul sat down to write his letter to the church 
In Rome, in 57, Nero had not yet begun turning the faithful into human torches. Still, it was already a precarious time to be a follower of Jesus in the empire's capital. Surely, the apostle knew this. You can sense his clear and growing concern for these embattled folk as the letter unfolds. Paul begins by addressing a series of general theological questions. What is sin? What is faith? What is grace? Well, what's the relationship between this new faith, Christianity, and the faith in which Paul and Jesus was brought up, Judaism? How do the old stories of Abraham and Sarah and Moses relate to the new stories of Good Friday and Easter. The first part of Romans reads like a, a primer on Christianity. Paul addresses basic questions that people have about faith, both Jews and non-Jews, and he provides answers that seek to explain how it all works how God has, has reached out to us, all of us, in the person of Jesus Christ. But then, a little more than halfway through the book of Romans, the tone of the letter shifts. It moves from, from careful analysis to heartfelt concern. It, it shifts from defining theological terms to acknowledging as you heard in the choir's amazing anthem, to acknowledging that sometimes we get so desperate, so scared, so anxious that we don't know what to say or to pray. We cannot even piece a few words together in our endeavors to talk to God. In the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul the professor sets down his chalk and Paul, the pastor, reaches out to take his reader's trembling hand. In chapter 8, Paul insists that the powers that be, the emperor and his, his soul-stomping cruelty, will not win. Nero doesn't get to decide your destiny, says Paul. No politician, no teacher, no boss in the corner office, nobody gets to say who you are. And you can hear Paul wind up to this. What then are we to say about these things? If, if God is for us, who's against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but, but gave him for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who's to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. And yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. And then Paul begins to list all the struggles faced by the faithful in Rome. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Here, Paul quotes from Psalm 44, and Psalm 44 is a lament. It's a, it's a lament spoken by people who feel abandoned by God. Now, there are those in the church who feel like passages like Psalm 44 are too grim, and they wish they weren't in the Bible, but I've got to tell you, I am grateful that texts like this exist. Why? Well, primarily because there are days when life is a bloody mess, when the world is a slaughterhouse. And on days like that, Psalm 44 and Romans 8 have enough steel in their backbone to stand tall amidst the horror. They stand tall because they are clear-eyed enough to acknowledge the awful truth of our circumstances, and they stand tall because, nodding to this hard truth, they then have the courage to point beyond it. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can move beyond the awful moments of life without first acknowledging them. To ignore human trauma is to be both psychologically and theologically dishonest. To ignore suffering and hurt, to repress it, to wish that others would never speak of it, only gives trauma more power, an insidious, shadowy power, whereas to name it, as Paul does, to, to name all the hard and harsh things that seem to stand between us and God, is to embrace truth and to step toward faith. And this is precisely what Paul does. He says, yes, the forces of evil are real, but they don't get to win. Yes, there are monstrous powers out there, but they will not, they will never define God's children. Paul says, no, no way, not on Christ's watch. Listen again to all the things to which Paul says, no, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come what may, and surely, says Romans 8, all sorts of nasty stuff will come. You are grounded. You are held. You are defined only and completely by the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing and no one, says Paul, can separate you or me from the love of God. I want to tell you three stories this morning that I think unpack the implications of these powerful and reorienting words from Paul. Each of these stories, I think, shines light on a different facet of Romans 8. Story number one. Story number one comes from a practice that has been growing in popularity in American high schools in recent years. I know that Werner knows about it. It's called 
a rejection party. Have you heard about rejection parties? At these boisterous events, students bring a letter, or many letters, of rejection from a college to which they've applied. In some cases, they tear them to pieces in front of their friends. At the downtown Magnets High School in Los Angeles, Linda McGee, one of the school's college counselors, wheels out a large, obnoxious paper shredder. High school seniors parade into the room, clutching their rejection letters, and feed them into the clattering shredder. Sheet after sheet is masticated in a dramatic fashion, and as they're chewed up, the rest of the students cheer. <laughs> after all the shredding, there's a party, there's music, there's dancing, there's ice cream, because ice cream makes everything better. I love this practice. I love the fact that these young adults are learning how not to be defined by rejection. Think about it. Every spring, there are way more, millions more rejection letters being sent out around this country than there are acceptance letters. Ad admissions is a vast numbers game, and, and sometimes it's not done all that well. Last year, the University of California sent out 20,000 rejection letters to a set of undergraduate candidates, and then, in an administrative foul-up, they sent them out again. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer to be rejected twice by the same place, but also, it sort of takes the sting out of it, right? These places make mistakes too. Ultimately, these computer-generated letters should not define these young people. There are many things, says the apostle, that will say no to us in this life. Don't put your sense of self-worth there. You are beloved of God. Nothing and, and nobody can take that away from you. The words of Romans 8 are powerful, and they have the ability to comfort. They're also somewhat scandalous. I mean, let's face it, we want to apply these words to ourselves. But at the same time, it can be difficult to apply them to others, to those we think do not deserve the love of God. Story number two. A few weeks ago, I received multiple emails alerting me to a violent event that took place on the campus of our beloved friends at First Presbyterian Church, Jamaica, Queens. We have partnered with First Church Jamaica for numerous educational events, service opportunities, meals, conversations about race and faith. We belong to each other. So I was distressed to learn that on a Thursday afternoon, a man with a knife stabbed a security guard in the stomach on the grounds of First Church. The police were called. The man then menaced the police with the knife. The police shot and subdued him. Both men were taken away in ambulances. Leaving the church staff to grapple with the bloody trauma 
that had just played out in their midst and to pray for the life of the guard who was in critical condition. For your sake, for being killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Over the last two weeks, Patrick O'Connor, the pastor of First Pres Jamaica, my dear friend, has visited the security guard in the ICU a number of times, and you will be relieved to learn that his condition has steadily improved. He's going to make it. I spoke to Patrick on Friday. He told me a curious piece of this story, a piece you won't find in the papers. The fellow who was the stabber was known to the community at First Presbyterian Church. He'd come to their food pantry. He'd sat in their worship services. The man struggles with mental illness, Patrick said. Still, I wanted to strangle him for stabbing our guard. And the bizarre thing, Patrick continued, is that when I went to visit the ICU, the guard was in bed number one and the stabber was in bed number six. It all felt so strange. The third time I went to visit, Patrick said, I walked down to the nurse's station and I inquired about the stabber. He'd been shot twice and then tased before he dropped the knife. Standing there talking to the nurses, said Patrick, the perpetrator of this violence heard my voice and called out to me. He cried out, Pastor! My friend went on, if he'd said Patrick, I think I would have turned and walked away. But he said, Pastor. And in that moment, I felt the claim of Jesus, the scandalous claim that God extends love to all people wash over me. He said, Pastor, and I went. I went in to talk with him, and I did not strangle him. <laughs> I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes the good book's most powerful words can sound scandalous to our ears. Sometimes the thing trying to stand in the way of the love of God in Christ Jesus is us. And despite our best efforts, that love still finds a way, still manages to show up. Okay, one last story. At some point, when I was in junior high, I think 13, maybe 14, my parents sat me down for a serious conversation. I'm pretty sure that this furrowed brow talk was precipitated by some event that had been reported on in the news, one of those parents' worst nightmare scenarios. But I don't know exactly what it was that rattled them. 
I knew that they were worried, they were sitting me down, and they wanted to convey something to me. I remember my parents' words quite clearly. Scott, they said, if ever you are in trouble, and it doesn't matter what sort of trouble it is or how it got started, we want you to know that all you need to do is call us and we will come and get you. No matter what might have happened, no matter where you are, we will come and get you. They stared at me after saying those words, unsure if they'd sunk into my thick adolescent skull. Got it, I responded. <laughs> if ever I'm in trouble, I will call. And we will come, my mother repeated. <laughs> Wanting this awkward moment and their obvious nervousness to go away, I nodded. <laughs> Over the years, this moment has stuck with me. It's grown in significance for me. In fact, I've said these words, similar words, to our own children. Now, I never had to make that call, but still the fierce promise of my parents grounded me. It began to feel like a sacred promise. And then one day in college, in this basic Bible class that I was taking, I came across a similarly powerful and equally holy promise. I found myself reading Romans 8, and tears ran down my cheeks. I'm convinced, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostle asserts that God's solidarity with us and love for us is just as powerful as the promises made by our earthly parents. In fact, Romans 8 asserts that God's wild solidarity and fierce love extends beyond the most passionate promises that earthly parents can ever make. Ten years ago, when Gene Pape came and asked me to pick a Bible passage to be printed on the wall of the Fifth Avenue Columbarium in the place outside these doors here where we inter the ashes of beloved members, where we tuck in the remains of the saints, I could not think of a better choice. I wrote back to Gene. I recommend the last two verses of Romans 8. They glow with the fire of God. Would you stand, my friends, in body or in spirit and repeat those words with me? They can be found in your bulletin and on your screen. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, 
nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Go to the world. Go into every place. Go live the word of God's redeeming grace. Go seek God's presence in every time and place. Alleluia. Alleluia. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.